Hello, my name is Jacinta Robinstein. I am an acute care surgeon at Metro Health Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio, and the trauma medical director at Fisher Titus Medical Center in Norwalk, Ohio. Welcome to this career cast brought to you on behalf of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma's Career Development Committee. Today, Dr. Alexandra Colonna, Dr. Carolyn Park, and Dr. Zaf Kassam will be discussing the role of simulation in medical education. Would everyone mind going around and introducing themselves and uh, kind of discussing where you where you came from and how where you're at right now and what your role is right now? Go ahead, Dr. Colonna. Sure. Thanks uh, very much, um, Dr. Robinstein, for having me on. My name is Alexander Colonna. I am uh, an acute care surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Uh, I am originally from the Southeast. Uh, that's where I did all my training. Uh, I'm also the fellowship uh, program director for the Surgical Critical Care Fellowship and Acute Care Surgery Fellowships we have, and I'm also the uh, fourth year sub-internship uh, clerkship director for the medical students. Dr. Park? Hi, good morning, and thanks so much for um, having us today. Um, so I am also I'm assistant professor in trauma acute care surgery critical care here at Parkland um, in Dallas. I uh, was born and raised on the East Coast. A, a lot of my training was there. I did eventually move out to um, L.A. County, um, Los Angeles for my trauma fellowship, and I'm currently now entering my third year um, as faculty here. I am associate fellowship director and um, Heavily involved in education. And Dr. Kassam. Yeah, great to be here. Um, I'm uh, Zach Kassam. I'm a emergency medicine and uh, surgical critical care at Penn, uh, and uh, did my uh, fellowship training in Baltimore at Shock Trauma. I've been at Penn for the last uh, four years or so, and I've been uh, pretty heavily involved with uh, medical education as well, uh, in particular. Uh, developing uh, part of our Insight G simulation program. All right. Thank you very much, and I appreciate everyone taking the time out of their day to do this career cast with us. Um, so, would anyone mind kind of explaining what the different types of sim like medical education simulation is out there? I know the more traditional model has been it within a simulation center, and now simulations branching out into more in situ options. Um, what have you guys seen so far in your careers and what do you personally do? Ooh, that's a broad, that's a broad question. Yeah, uh, <laughs> trying to keep it interesting. <laughs> I guess I'm kind of the, I guess I'm kind of the old guy um, on, on this podcast as I've been in practice for a deck uh, for 12 years now. Um, so I've seen it all on my career, you know, uh, back when I started medical school 20 years ago, um, we had uh, a lot of sim uh, pa simulation was heavily involved with uh, with uh, patient actors um, and scenarios that's evolved to using the the trauma man mannequin, the high fidelity simulation, um, both in a simulation lab and the portable mannequin that's run by simulation techs. Uh, to computer-based simulations, which I think we're all familiar with uh, from, you know, taking the step two and step three exams to the stuff that I'm working on now, which is fully virtual um, trauma simulations um, on the VR headsets. We'll definitely get more into that as, uh, as we go forward. Uh, Dr. Park, what have you seen so far and what does your center do? 
Yeah, I echo with uh, Dr. Colonna's experience. Um, you know, simulation actually has been around for a long, long time. Um, ATLS is basically simulation. You're, you have scenarios, you have a mannequin, you're practicing procedures. You know, with repetitions, you um, inevitably get better. Um, so, you know, that, that has definitely been sort of the cornerstone of trauma. But I would say for medical education, certainly the, the patient actors are, are huge. Of course, we lost a lot of that last year with, with COVID. Um, and then, you know, laparoscopy was huge. Uh, that was that was a big, big part of, of simulation. And I remember, um, you know, utilizing those box trainers and also the VR trainers uh, at Beth Israel Deaconess is where I trained in Boston. And they did have a sort of they, they had a simulation center. But I would say that it, it's it met its purpose for certain things like bronchoscopy and colonoscopy and certain procedures. But when it came to like team dynamics, it was not easy right? because you were pulled as an individual to do something. And it really, um, even though it was high fidelity equipment, it really didn't bring the realism of like being in the middle of like an operation when things go wrong. So, um, and, and I agree, I think VR has definitely made a lot of headway in the last few years. It's gotten certainly much better. And then of course, augmented reality, which I'm actually really interested in, which is kind of um, superimposing images onto what you see in real life, kind of like Google Lens technology. Interesting. Have you used that in your uh, education so far? Or is that just something you guys are looking into right now? We currently have the devices and we're um, looking forward to using it in training, but we have we're, we're not quite there yet. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Kasson. Yeah, a lot of it uh, covered by my colleagues here. Um, I think uh, certainly the, the focus has uh, very much evolved as we understand kind of more about human factors in uh, uh, in uh, our daily workplace as well as training. And so, um, you know, moving the uh, simulation out of the simulation center into in situ uh, scenarios has been really useful, not just to focus on just one kind of uh, clinician group, uh, often, you know, it used to be often the residents, but more so including the whole team, uh, the nurses, the techs, anybody else who's there involved with that patient scenario. So that's uh, certainly evolved. Um, and the other thing I would say is, uh, even though it's it's uh, very interesting and useful to have some of these evolving technologies and the high fidelity mannequins, um, you can uh, often do a, a really good job using very low fidelity equipment as long as the facilitator is uh, well versed in education theory and techniques and is able to kind of recreate that scenario. Sometimes we've had our most intense simulations with very simple equipment. Um, and so I think you can do this in, in a number of different uh, settings in a number of different ways and achieve really good results. Awesome. Um... And since this is about uh, career paths and everything, how did it, would everyone mind talking about how they ended up in simulation and uh, roles in their institution? Was it something that you had gone into, like really passionate about? Is it something that you said it was an opportunity that you said yes to? Has it kind of gone organically? Um, how did you get into this role? I love video games, and I tried to figure out a way to get the institution to buy a VR headset for me. <laughs> uh, that's only half. I'm only half joking. Um, gosh, I fell. Um, I fell into education actually um, when I joined the faculty at the University of Utah back in 2012. You know, I was you know, exchanging emails with my soon-to-be colleagues and uh, Dr. Malia Cochran, whom some of you may know from her. Internet presence was was here 
as a burn surgeon, a big, uh, a big proponent of education and just, you know, she knew one of my mentors and emailed me and said, hey, you want to be the assistant clerkship director when you get here? And I'm like, sure, yeah, whatever. Uh, and this is coming from a place where I was actually <laughs> quite a bad teacher um, in residency and a skill that I've really had to work on. So uh, I've been involved in education at the University of Utah uh, since I got here just because they needed someone to be the assistant clerkship director. And I said yes to the I, I said yes to the gig. Uh, my interest in simulation and education, you know, simulation education and then the research has come as I've, uh, you know, done education research and participated in projects and figured out, you know, advanced curriculums. And then the new technology is just because I'm a nerd and I, I love gadgets. Um, so uh, that's kind of how I fell into that with uh, with with our project using using these technologies. But it's a big part of my career. I love teaching. I love computers. So it's a natural fit. Excellent. Dr. Park? Uh, yeah, I'm actually completely a nerd, too, and I totally own that. I, I, I grew up with Super Nintendo, actually, and N64, and so I, I've got a couple favorite games that I, I spent a lot of summers playing that. But, um, you know, ironically enough, I think a lot of education, um, and especially specifically my path, has been towards, like, you know, where's the opportunity for improvement, right? So a lot of big cities, especially, and even now in smaller cities, you're seeing a lot of these level ones pop up, the, um, you know, the sort of the acuity of the trauma is sort of being diluted, and you're seeing an effect on the trainee's experience, right? So, you know, they're working 80 hours a week, they're not on call overnight anymore, um, and, you know, the, the kind of trauma that you used to see in the reps that you would kind of get are just no longer there. And um, that was something that, you know, the nursing staff, the faculty, and even the residents were like, we need we need to practice more. And, you know, I think that that's where the need came from. And that's where I fell into play. Certainly not something that I was looking into when I joined here, um, but just fell into, helped with curriculum development. Um, like Dr. Uh, Colonna was, was mentioning, education becomes such a big part of your career that you basically have to it basically checks off a lot of boxes for you. So it becomes your educational research, right? Um, it becomes part of your big administrative role. In addition to what we kind of do as academic, you know, physicians anyway, is, is teach residents. So for me, I, I feel like it's kind of like the middle of that Venn diagram. And it's just like the sweet spot of every, it kind of hits everything for me. Um, so that's why I love it. And plus, you know, again, it's a skill that I've learned to, to get better in. And now, you know, I've realized that I really love working with, um, you know, surgical residents in addition to fellows. Awesome. Dr. Kasson? Yeah, it's uh, kind of an amalgam of uh, what uh, these guys have said. And, uh, you know, I got introduced to simulation early on in my training. Um, uh, I was actually in the UK at the time. And uh, when I came and uh, joined at Penn, looked at opportunities to continue uh, the resident educational role of my uh, position as faculty. And uh, certainly we were uh, lacking uh, simulation within uh, the emergency department at the time. And so it looked like a good opportunity to kind of bring this um, from the ground up and in terms of an insight you program uh, and aligning with colleagues who are doing it in say anesthesia um, and other parts of the department and uh, actually kind of fit in at the time for uh, we were uh, modifying numerous kind of multidisciplinary team pathways uh, for example for or difficult airway management and things and it seemed a nice way to kind of marry all those 
um, all those uh, protocols and things into a scenario just to see how it actually uh, fit from paper into reality. Um, and so it built from there. Awesome. What has been what has been one of the most challenging aspects you've faced as you've, you know, whether you're trying to institute a new program or you're trying to get your institution to buy, you know, maybe uh, more expensive technology? Um, what, have, what have you found the most challenging? And that could be that really could be anything, whether it's like something that you have had to learn yourself or working with administration or working with the students. Um, what have you found to be the biggest challenge you've had so far? Well, I think for anybody that does, well, I, let me back up. I'm lucky that, you know, we have, an, that at least now I'm at an institution that very much supports education. So, you know, we don't have a ton of resources, but, uh, you know, we, we feel strongly in education, medical student, all the way up to fellows. So a lot of support for me in my career to, to be one of the core educators, core educators in the department. I think my biggest struggle uh, was sort of coming into learning um, simulation, specifically in education, is it's just learning how to do it. And, and you know, no one teaches you how to teach, right? Uh, you know, you just assume that you learn by doing as a resident and medical student. And uh, it's not something that I was had any natural skill with. Um, so, you know, I have to seek out those opportunities to learn how to be a teacher. Um, I actually got my master's in clinical investigation. I kind of wish I would have gone back and gotten an education at this point. But, uh, you know, I did the Surgeons as Educators course at the American College of Surgeons, which uh, for anybody listening out there, I'm going to plug it. It's a great course. Uh, taught me a lot. And then, you know, a lot of mentorship from the, the senior folks when I was junior faculty uh, to teach me how to teach. And then, you know, continuous faculty development. Uh, throughout the year, uh, supported by our vice chair of education and all that sort of stuff. So it's learning how to teach, and then specifically the simulation. I think the something that that's not explicitly um, spelled out is that there's really three areas that you can simulate. Uh, and y'all two, please jump in, and because I'm sure you found it fine, have found this as well. There's first the technical aspects of whatever you're trying to learn. So that's the actual. Anything from low-cost simulators like the rubber models that you, we teach the medical students to so on, uh, all the way up to that uh, video game that uh, Dr. Park was talking about, the laparoscopic uh, computer simulation of gallbladders where you have the haptic feedback on the laparoscopic instruments and you're watching a 3D uh, game, essentially, of you uh, taking out a gallbladder. Um, then there's the algorithmic learning, which uh, is what ATLS teaches you, right, doing all the ATLS courses and simulations learning the branching decision trees and if this, then that, that we all, you know, we're all running all those algorithms in the back of our heads all the time to the big macro simulation, the team training, uh, which we do, um, you know, at the University of Utah, we do a high fidelity trauma sim where we have anesthesia, the surgery residents, OB for our pregnant trauma simulation, nursing staff, EMTs, and that really builds that uh, team training uh, aspect. So uh, figuring out those three different levels of simulation and which what technology is good for one, what can do a little bit of all three has been the biggest learning curve for me. Awesome. Yeah, I, I would echo a lot of those same sentiments. I think that time is probably the most precious aspect and cannot be replicated. 
And, you know, when we first started this program back in 2018, you know, the simulations were like an hour and a half long. I mean, we did two simulations. They were really complicated. And looking back, and we've evolved since then, it, they don't have to be that long. I mean, you can build a high-quality simulation in 20 minutes, and you don't need a ton of equipment. And so we didn't have a lot of equipment. And, uh, you know, it was really as simple as thinking, well, what do we have? What do we have? We have eight to less mannequins because we teach it anyway, so why don't we just use those mannequins? Um, and so we were actually just sort of um, kind of improvising. And I think that's a lot of sort of ground-up institutions do, which I think is great because there is no one-size-fits-all. You want to build something that's going to work for you guys. You want to build something that gets buy-in from the faculty, the residents, the trainees, and nursing staff. I, I think uh, Dr. Kassman actually mentioned this, but, but getting buy-in from the nursing staff is huge because they have seen an improvement with, you know, communication and procedures since doing this. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we're even thinking about getting simulations ongoing for, for the nursing staff as well. Um, so I'd say, you know, you really have to identify the core people in your group that are interested um, because they're the ones that are going to be committed to this thing long term. And it will be self-sustaining to some point. But the front load of the work is, is you know, I'm not going to lie, it's, it, it requires a lot of work. And you have to core out a time where everyone's going to respect it and show up. So for us, we have Trump Conference on Fridays. Everybody shows up for that. Um, it's 7 to 9 every morning. That way you catch the night shift and the day shift folks. And that's what we do. And, you know, leadership respects that and protects that time. You know, so I would say th those have been like probably the biggest challenges. Yeah. Oh, yeah, always difficult to get people to be able to come to conferences and not have emergencies or or other issues. Yeah, we very much um, kind of as we were building this and we wanted to throw this simulation into a regular kind of workday. And so trying to figure out a time where we didn't uh, detract or potentially cause uh, um, uh, a dangerous department because um, there was, uh, you know, busy workload was really challenging. In fact, our very first one, we set up a huge plan to get it started. And then 10 minutes before it started, our chair gave me a call and said, we can't do it today. I go, OK, great. <laughs> Um, and then uh, I agree, you know, the, the uh, having nursing involved was key. And we decided at our place to uh, have one of our nurses really keen on education as part of the uh, kind of planning for each scenario. Um, and that really helped kind of uh, develop that buy in from all the members of staff uh, that, you know, there was someone kind of looking after their learning goals as well, rather than just mm -hmm. the. Um, just the physician doing uh, physician things, so quote unquote. Um, but uh, and that really brought a more more of a team spirit into into our thing. So certainly, I think you should anticipate those those challenges and uh, try and overcome them early in your planning stage uh, by involving a multidisciplinary group if that's the audience that you're trying to cater to. Absolutely. Um, have you guys gotten any feedback from from the residents like as you kind of developed this uh, education experience for them? Where is, was there some pushback at the beginning or some some bumps along the road? Are, are they excited? Is it just another you know thing that they have to tick off on their day? Um, what is your video experience? The residents love it. Um, we've actually got two projects in the pipeline that we're submitting to uh, publish actually. Our chief resident uh, just won the best poster award at ASC for our, our trauma simulation survey study that we did. Um, 
you know, the residents and medical students, anytime they get FaceTime with the attendings, that really that one-on-one -on -one feedback, uh, they love it. I mean, they drink it up. Mm -hmm. It's with us. They're consistent. And I think uh, Dr. Park and Dr. Kasson, you probably found this in your ACGME surveys. I mean, the, the residents just want FaceTime with the attendings, protected time where it's just learning and practicing skills without having the added burden of, you know, doing excellent patient care. So I think even if it's just, you know, sitting there with a medical student and showing him how to tie him, him or her how to tie a one-handed knot, I mean, they love it, right? Um, so, and I think having, you know, simulation um, where you're working on a skill uh, and the idea is that you give feedback to each other, uh, that's always a win. Um, and, the, and like Dr. Kasson was saying, uh, you know, having the nurses come in, because we have a trauma simulation. We also have an ACLS code simulation that we run in our intensive care unit that obviously the, the nurses and staff are participating in. They, they love that team interaction um, and that closed loop communication, all the good stuff that we're supposed to do. Yeah, it's definitely a two-way street, and you know, I highly we encourage um, one one of the really essential parts of the simulation is the debrief. Um, so we spend like a good amount of time talking about that, mm -hmm. and you know, I really try to make it an experience where it's not punitive. You know, we're not judging you. This is like an opportunity for you. It's like working out. Like you, you're like working out. You're training for a marathon. Like some days you're gonna have bad days, and some days you're gonna have great days. You know, some days you're gonna know exactly how to put a Reboa in, and sometimes you're like, I don't even know, you know, what, what the landmarks are. And that's okay, because we try to rotate and have everyone kind of go through it as well, um, and also solicit feedback from them. It's like, look, how can we make this better? And you have to keep it fresh, right? You can't just keep using the same scenario over again. You And what we've done, you know, instead of having to reinvent the wheel and create new scenarios, we actually just kind of look back at the last few months of our trauma patients. We're like, that was a pretty complicated scenario. This patient came in with blunt trauma, bad pelvic fracture. Let's make this into a simulation. We improvise a little bit. And, you know, for them, they actually can be like, I remember this one, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, well, this is a learning point that we wanted to take from it. So I think, you know, it really is not just like game time, or gym time. It's like, hey, you want to learn how to put a chest tube in or you want to put a Reboa in? This is the time for you to practice it so that when the time comes, the fellow's not going to take away from you, right? Like, it's yours. So, so that's kind of what, um, you know, what, what I've emphasized. Yeah, yeah make, make your mistakes on the mannequin. Make your mistakes in the simulation. That's what we, we want the residents to make. You know, best, best piece of trauma advice that I ever got was, you know, make a decision. You know, you can't sit around there <laughs> dithering. Like, either you make a decision. If it's the wrong one, it's the right one. At least you're making a decision. And that's mm -hmm. what we want to teach the residents, you know, make that decision. If it's the wrong one, it's fine. This is practice. This is mm -hmm. get the algorithm down, make the decisions, fumble with the chest tube or the crike, fumble with the central line on, on, on the model. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, mm -hmm. You know, when there's a patient that you need to shave the seconds off or save the minutes on, you're, you're doing it quickly, you're doing it efficiently and making the right decisions. Mm -hmm. yeah, great. When you guys debrief, do you guys, uh, record the simulations or is it a conversation or combination thereof what do you find is the most useful or is it better in different circumstances like different techniques yeah it's a good question we um we struggled a little bit because we felt uh you know the 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 people who, who got the most benefit were the ones who were there on the day and so and they all all in large and i'm sure my colleagues would agree that debrief really Kind of is is the crux of the uh, of that sim, um, and so we thought about you know how can we disseminate this uh, to other folk the lessons learned, 
so we did a couple things. One was we uh, uh, one of our um, uh, organizing folk sent out a, a bullet point email just to, from learning points from that scenario. Well, we recently moved to utilizing GoPro cameras for the uh, simulation as well as the uh, debrief itself. And we have a, you know, like a, a secure server that's on our intranet that we can put that on for uh, utilizing uh, or for disseminating that to other folk as well. And so uh, we're looking at ways that we can maybe introduce that into uh, our conference schedule and things like that. So but I think getting that uh, to a broader audience is useful. Yeah, I think video review is incredibly helpful. I mean, the way I see it, you know, growing up in team sports, it's like you know, really don't know how you did unless you really take yourself out of the picture, right? You're like, oh, my God, what was I thinking? Like, I didn't even see you over there. And um, Ryan Dumas, who's one of our video experts here, he's that's his thing. He does trauma video review. And we uh, do review our patients, our actual trauma patients. But we haven't quite jumped the, the gap to make it for simulation, although I think it's a great idea. It would definitely add some more time. Mm -hmm. simulation but it would certainly i think be worth it yeah we do um, we do video review as well and i just i was just thinking back like i remember the first time i had a video review same thing i was on swim team in medical middle school and i remember you know the coach actually videotaping us and correcting my freestyle because my arms were like flailing around <laughs> like synchronous mm -hmm. i think that's how i actually went <laughs> back in the day remember the first incidents of video review Video review is incredibly powerful. We don't do it for the simulation. Uh, same reasons Dr. Park said, it's a little bit too time intensive. We have a paper form that we fill out uh, that has the, you know, the, the, you know, branching decision points that we want to make sure that the residents make, and that's kind of what guides our debrief as to, you know, how many, how many correct decisions did you make, where did you fumble, and you know, we have a nurse educator who's an invaluable resource. If you if you don't have a dedicated nurse educator in your department, I highly suggest the. Uh, convincing your chair uh, to get you one, uh, but she helps with the simulations and helps, you know, helped us develop uh, that scoring paperwork and we, we keep records of it. And that's part of um, one of the research projects we're doing is looking at, at how scores improve over time with the simulation. Uh, but I don't think, I, you know, I don't know, maybe if you guys record your debriefs, maybe that would be worth recording so that there's like a library of, of debriefs. I don't know that if we recorded the actual simulations as if anybody would actually spend the time looking at the simulations. Um, we do have a secure you know, server as well that has our, uh, at least our level one, our highest activation level of trauma reviews kind of, we videotape all of them. Um, and I've had the residents uh, go back and look at their own uh, tapes to you know, see how they did, um, but a powerful tool. Um, and, Going back to um, talking about the uh, the team building, I know some of you have mentioned you've gotten nurses and everyone involved, and I do find that a lot of times, especially as you know newer because newer chiefs come on, or say um, like at Metro Health, we have a lot of uh, people who rotate through. Um, they're you know they may not be as familiar with the environment or the team. Um, for those of you who have done the more team building approach, um, who do you find? Is it everyone who gets the most benefit? Uh, is it different people? Like, who do you find gets the most benefit out of that? Or is it just like net positive? Net positive? Yeah. <laughs> Simple answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it depends on the scenario. I think there are definitely times where like, you know, it might be heavily procedurally based or, it, you know, you're really 
starting to stress like an algorithm, like how do we activate IR? How do we activate MTP? And that is where, you know, the nurses play a huge role, um, how to prime the Belmont for massive transfusion. And we have, you know, um, have them participate in those specifically so that they learn how to train, the, you know, um, uh, how to use that um, technology. So uh, I, I'd say it kind of depends, but the ultimate goal is should that is be, should be that they are all participating to some degree. Um, otherwise, you will lose interest. You know, they're like, why are we here? Why are we taking out an hour and a half of our Fridays to be here? So get yeah. them actively involved. Awesome. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, um, sometimes I find the uh, the rising seniors, uh, you know, they, they want to move to that from that uh, team member to team leader in a role so they can uh, uh, sometimes practice that. But I agree with Dr. Park that they need to have an objective for each member of the person that's in there so that they uh, – can kind of come out of it with something that they've improved upon. Awesome. Yeah, one, you, one strategy. Um, please go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was going to say one strategy I've also used is, um, you know, they also love teaching as well. So if I feel like they are proficient enough and competent enough to do that, then certainly, like, please walk someone through how to put a cortis in, uh, how to do a resuscitative thoracotomy, you know, showing them all the steps. And of course, like with supervision, we're all in the room, but I feel like if you kind of hand that over to them and they have a little bit more autonomy, responsibility, they own that and it gets them definitely more engaged. Mm -hmm. on what, uh, Dr. Kasson said, you know, as I mentioned, you know, there's just three different aspects of simulation that you can work on, the technical skills, the algorithmic decision making, and then the team building. I think if you're going to involve, have a multidisciplinary uh, simulation. That's really more of a team building exercise. Obviously, the team leaders making the decisions and working on the algorithms, but you know the nurses aren't going to sit there and watch. You know, the residents fumble with the the chest tube in our you know <laughs> baby back rib bottle. Uh, um, so uh, yeah, you have to target you have to target your audience to um to keep everybody involved. But the big sort of team trauma resuscitation simulation, that's an excellent way. And then the ACLS simulation that we do as well, that, that gets all the team members involved. You work on, you know, knowing people's names and closed loop communication and effective communication, you know, trying to get people out of the habit of someone put in a chest tube. Like, yeah. <laughs> who's someone? You know, yeah. Billy put in the chest tube, you know, whatever. So. Yeah. Well, and like you were saying, like the, the senior residents want to move to the team leader and also how you were talking about no one really ever teaches you how to teach. Have you found that doing these simulations for some of the fellows or for the uh, older residents, does that, you know, they're learning the skills and maybe the team building, but does it also help them learn how to teach? Like, is that part of the goal in your simulation training? I don't think it's been uh, a specific uh, uh, goal, but what we found is that as we kind of evolved with the program, our residents have said that they want to be part of the uh, group that's helping create the sims. And so uh, I think it's, it creates opportunity for them to look at a new aspect of their own kind of evolution in their medical education aspirations um so i think it being, can be useful in that way um but i think you can certainly build that into a sim as well that the focus of the sim is for you to teach an inexperienced say an inexperienced resident or something how to do this um so that can certainly be a part of it 
Yeah, not explicitly, but um, there's a lot of, you know, learn by doing, I guess, and modeling mm -hmm. the um, behaviors of the, you know, the attending that's leading the simulation. Uh, I've also, you know, as we have experienced uh, senior residents, and especially our uh, our chiefs and senior residents that are going into acute care surgery, we always try to let them, we try to back off. Uh, a, because, you know, of our library of scenarios, by the time they're chief residents, they've seen all of them at least once. Um, so if they're experienced and motivated, we try to back off and let the uh, let the chief resident take the third year or the intern or whoever they want to through the simulation to, to have them do that teaching. Um, yeah. Um, and kind of going back to what we were talking about with the uh, different newer technologies. What can you talk a little bit about uh, the? We were talking about the augmented reality simulation. Um, what what direction do you hope? To, like, what specific scenarios do you hope to use that in? Uh, and what's kind of your vision for that, Dr. Park? Yeah, I think augmented reality is really the future of medicine. Um, whether it's a good or bad thing, um, telemedicine really took off this last year because of COVID. And I think it captured a lot of people's interest and buy-in. Um, also on the patient side too. You know, we've had plenty of patients that have told us like, hey, this is great. I don't have to lose a day's work because I can just call you on my phone. So I think a lot of what we do, um, especially since we do so much it, like sort of image-based surgery anyway, laparoscopy, robotics, right? Like, are you, you actually have your hands on the intestine? No, there's an instrument on it or there's a robot that's attaching you to it. I think that a lot of what we can do um, can be sort of remote. And so augmented reality helps us in a way that um, it, it's basically like, I guess my corollary is Iron Man. Iron Man has like a mask, Jarvis, you can see through it. But when Iron Man looks through Jarvis, he also sees like little data things that are getting pulled up, right? Like, you know, what's the body temperature of this person? Like, you know, um, all these other things. And it kind of, it can produce the same information for a trainee. Inevitably, we're hoping that it gets translated to the point where it goes to bedside, you know, taking care of patients, right? You know, one of our ideas is, well, you know, there's so many image-based things that we can do, like diagnosing cancer or melanoma, right? Such a sort of photographic bait kind of um, based medicine, burn wounds, triaging burn wounds. And I know at Utah, you know, that, that's a big thing, using telemedicine, telehealth for that. So I think we can really help not only train our trainees to to give them a little bit more autonomy so we're not sitting right next to them if they're trying to do something. We can be a little bit further away, but we can also be there virtually, I guess, at the same time and see what they're seeing. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of utility in using augmented reality. I love the uh, the Iron Man reference, but uh, that's, that's you know, we, we've played around. We had Google Glass and we were playing around with it. You know, the technology is kind of clunky. At the moment, but like Dr. Park was saying, really, um, you know, pie in the sky for augmented reality, or at least the stuff that we've debated is, uh, you know, um, not so much for training, but assisted decision making. You know, like, you know, uh, our anesthesia group has been working. We have a, a a computer scientist in the anesthesia group that's been working on an uh, artificial intelligence recognition of structures based on video laryngoscopy. Uh, and uh, we've been trying to work on that on, um, you know, laparoscopic procedures. You know, can a computer tell us where the common bile duct is? Um, but that would be the, like, just like Jarvis or Friday, you know, you have the glasses on, 
you're looking at an open abdomen. I mean, it wouldn't be awesome if that computer can overlay, you know, Netter's Atlas of Anatomy over it. So you're like, well, there's where the ureter should be. This is where the computer thinks the ureter is. Maybe I, you know, I shouldn't bobe down there. Uh, but all that, those data points, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could have the patient's vital signs right in front of us if we're, you know, trying to fix a hole in the aorta so we know, like, you know, where anesthesia is. Do we just have to hold pressure? Are they caught up? Uh, telemedicine, obviously, you know, uh, we've uh, we've been doing tele-ICU for many years uh, here at the University of Utah, and uh, I, I think I'm the only attending that has actually run the robot, like, into an ICU wall because uh, I wasn't going <laughs> to drive it very well. But, you know, some of our partner institutions actually have that uh, that robot that you can drive around and, like, your face pops up and, you know, you can zoom in and look at stuff and look at vital signs. So, I mean, uh, the pieces of the technology are there, but, you know, we need a – that's why the virtual reality stuff is so exciting because the, the headsets have gotten pretty cheap now. You don't need a separate computer mm-hmm. to use them. But, you know, once they figure out a, you know, HoloLens or Google Glass or whatever version of it that's affordable and that you would actually wear without looking like too much of a dweeb, I think that's what's going to take off. Because the back-end stuff is there, the AI, the machine learning systems. Someone just needs to, you know, have a good interface and a good device. I think it'll take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what have you guys done so far? I know you were talking about virtual reality, and that's actually a little more handy now. I mean, I've I've done the climb Everest, like virtual reality thing, and definitely like fell over because it looked way real. But uh, so, what are you guys using with that, and how have you incorporated that into your education? Yeah, I mean, that's my, that's like my big research thing that I've got going on. Um, you know, we had a, our presentation at AAST last year. Um, but basically, we've virtualized uh, the trauma bay in, uh, in in the headset where you can stand, you know, walk around. You've got your your, your different team members and you select stuff to, to happen to the patients and stuff. So, um, you know, we have a, a, a basically a high fidelity simulation that's virtual. Um, uh, the um, you know we model the physiology and if you don't put the chest tube in the patient will die of their tension pneumothorax. So um, um, we we've gotten the software to the point where now um, we hopefully will be rolling it out and just having the medical students be able to, to to play with it while they're on the surgery rotation and then we're incorporating it into basically the trauma curriculum uh, here uh, as we um, as we improve the software. So um, and you know doing there's a lot of cool like projects you can do. Uh, you know, the, the, the biggest paper that came out recently about how useful simulation is, I think, is uh, uh, from my old stomping grounds at Wake Forest. That's where I did a fellowship with the group there. I actually showed that, you know, high-fidelity simulation um, can actually shave some time off of a trauma resuscitation. So I think that was one of the strongest papers that actually shows that simulation works in terms of patient outcomes. Uh, so we're we're trying to replicate you know that sort of team process in in the headset, which is portable. Uh, we'll be able to partner with uh, you know um, uh, other institutions, smaller institutions that refer us patients. You know those ER physicians out in rural areas that maybe don't have, that they don't have access. They can't come down to do ATLS more than just what they need to research. You know do the do some training that way. Uh, low and middle income uh, countries as well. Some global surgery stuff. You know. The headset is expensive. You do need to have some internet access, but it's a lot cheaper than putting together an ATLS course and having mannequins and all that sort of stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a lot, a lot of it's it's neat technology. And again, it's because it's the devices have become powerful enough, portable enough, and affordable enough that you know you don't need a three thousand dollar gaming computer 
and a, a very expensive you know, $1,000 headset to, um, to, to run the software. You have a 299 device that can do it all. Yeah, I agree. I think um, we've been fortunate. I think my recurring theme seems to be like, don't reinvent the wheel. So, you know, virtual reality, of course, like people put so much money into the gaming industry. Like this is why the technology is so good, right? Like, you know, the healthcare industry just hasn't bought into it yet, which is why some areas just are taking a long time to, to really get there. But I mean, yeah, the incredible quality in, in, in virtual reality is great. It's gotten so much better. Um, and you're not tethered to, to like a wall anymore and it makes you mobile, right? Like now we can do simulation at home, right? Like every trainee can get a headset now. Um, every instructor or instructor can get a headset. Like why have to fly people out, spend another night somewhere, you know, when a lot of instruction, if it's done really well, you probably don't have to be there at bedside. You probably don't have to put your hand on their hand to say, hey, this is what you have to do, right? Um, so I think a lot of instruction and quality instruction is going to go virtual um, simply because we have to be so much more efficient about our time these days. It's like, I don't care how fast you can fly a plane, like you're still losing time, you know, by having, you know, to, to do those things. And even conferences, even this year, I think done really well. Um, it, it should still be an option. I think that virtual reality will um, will help a variety of audiences. But for us specifically, we haven't really used it for trainees yet. Um, one of the biggest issues that we encountered with the medical students is that they're like they got pulled out of rotations and they were just like, what do we do now? Um, mm -hmm. So we thought, well, why don't we at least try to, you know, get them prepared for when they actually come to the operating room? What are the top three cases that they're going to see? On ACS, it's a acute, it's a it's a gallbladder surgery. It's taking an appendix out and doing a hernia repair, probably. Um, and so, basically, taking virtual reality videos that have already been done by somebody else, like they they use their own equipment, super expensive equipment to make these 360 videos. I'm not going to create my own because the operation on a screen looks the same. So basically, you know, just taking a whole library and be like, watch these videos before you come to the rotation, so that you can hit the ground running. Um, so that that was kind of our uh, sort of approach to how to teach in the COVID era. Oh, that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like you said, I think some of the, uh, like, laparoscopic, now there's more, especially on the more general surgery side, robotic, you know, like, these things, that, and team building, all of these um, algorithmic approaches um, uh, definitely lend themselves to technology. Um, you said, you said, Dr. Kasim, that sometimes just even low fidelity simulations done well can get you the technical aspects. Um, what about for like the, the trauma resident who needs to learn how to do the, the quick trauma X lap? Is there any, um, do you think there's a virtual option for that? Or is that still just, you know, you need to learn, do your chief year and your fellowship? Or is there, is there any way to kind of bridge for the ones that might not be easily lent to, uh, a higher tech way of doing it. I was going to give a plug for uh, perfuse cadavers, um, and I've used this. Uh, I've used perfuse cadavers on. Uh, I used to teach on the best course for Reboa, and I really got uh, involved with it then. But uh, and certainly be brought into like a sim world as well. Uh, and I think some places like uh, LA County are already doing that. Um, uh, so that could be an option for, especially for procedural specialties, um, where you really need that uh, uh, tissue fidelity. That uh, even though the sims are, the mannequins are getting better and better, it's still not the same as kind of really feeling and seeing uh, the, the tissues and looking at the anatomy. Um, so there's that option as well, um, and I think uh, certainly as uh, 
uh, people's imaginations and uh, technology kind of marry up, then uh, other options will present themselves for uh, for the procedural, really, you know, hands-on procedural stuff that we need to get across as well. Yeah, the uh, asset and atom courses are, are excellent. We're we're an asset side. We're all asset instructors. Um, I, I've done the gamut, right? You know, um, te- both taking the asset course and teaching the asset course. Uh, I'm also a, a, a military reservist. I've been in the army for 18 years, uh, four combat deployments, um, and, and one of the and, and many annual training exercises. Uh, <laughs> well, years ago we were up in Wisconsin in the winter, uh, pretending to invade North Korea. Uh, but um, you know, as part of a medical unit, um, you know, the army's. I mean, all army training is simulation, right? Because we're, we're we're not using uh, live rounds, at least the stuff that we do, but. They have a very extensive and well-developed moulage system in Army medicine where they actually have a uh, basically it's a it's a thorax and abdominal suit that the simulated patient wears. And you can actually do a thoracotomy on it. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous because it makes the patient, the, 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 the actor like twice as big as they actually are. But, you know, you can you know, it's basically plastic. You cut into it and there's like a fake liver and a fake spleen and lungs and all that sort of stuff. So, uh it's more to work the team than actually any surgical learning because uh, I was mm-hmm. chuckling the whole time I was doing it. But uh, obviously the uh, the uh, OR staff and you know, anesthesia provider and all that sort of stuff, I found it very helpful to, to run those drills uh, after we set up our um, forward surgical thing. But all the way to, you know, uh, the holy grail, at least in computer technology, is can we virtualize a human body? I mean, there's 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 multiple software programs, anatomy programs that are out there. Uh, there's one you can download on your phone that basically has you know a 3D model of all organ systems. You know, can we put that into a VR headset or augmented reality? Um, yes, we can, but the, you know there's there's no substitute for touching flesh with your hands. At some point, you have to ma- manipulate something corporeal, something in three dimensions to learn that to learn that technical mm-hmm. skill with your hands. Uh, hard to say if haptic feedback of the technology is going to ever get that. Um, that accurate, uh, but certainly what people are working on um, uh, to do that. Uh, Perfused cadavers are awesome, but very expensive. Got to have a cadaver lab, all that sort of stuff, which most you know big academic institutions have. A lot harder to push that out to uh, you know communities and, and rural places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you just have to be creative. Um, you know, we're we're trying to build ECMO here at Parkland, and you know simulations. And one of the nurse uh, educators. Basically, just looked looked online to to you know how to build a silicone model, um, and got a bunch of powder, added some water, um, got a mannequin from like a fabric store, and we built a groin, you know. Because yeah. I told her I was that's like, impressive. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I was like, your best actually. I was like, what about the chest tube tubing? Like not the actual chest tube itself, but what connects to the pleurotic? I was like, you could probably puncture that and use that kind of like a big vessel, you know. And so you just have to be creative sometimes. Um, we were trying to, you know, teach Raboa, not on a perfused trainer, but just like just trying to like you know, get, get your wire in. You know, how do you measure all that kind of stuff? We just use a chest tube, taped it onto the table, use the chest tube holes as like your entry site for your needle and your wire. And that was it. And you could see you could see the Raboa blowing up because it's, you know, um, see through. So, you know, you can do some of these things at low budget. Yeah, there's a lot of articles in the literature aren't aren't. Nurse educator Ruth Braga has published with multiple of the residents, uh, both you know, vas- low-cost vascular sims. You know, they put together a, a an aorta and iliac system for like six bucks using stuff from Home Depot. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, uh, and we're certainly not the only group that has published about that. There's a lot of ways mm-hmm. to do it very inexpensively with actually pretty decent fidelity uh, to mm-hmm. teach those basic skills. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing's going to replace, you know, learning on a patient. But, you know, that's the idea of simulation. You want to have, you know, have the general idea, know where the anatomy is, at least have memorized the steps like, all right, let's measure out the or Let's get our arterial access. Let's put it up. Don't don't forget to secure it. Otherwise, when you inflate the balloon, it's going to, you know, those steps that the best course teaches and all that sort of stuff that you can work on so that when you get into a patient, you know, most patients don't read the textbook, unfortunately. So uh, you at least have the basic steps down and know how it's supposed to go. So then you can worry mm-hmm. about like how it's actually going to go on or on a real person. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kind of wrapping up a little bit here, but as you know, now that you're in the spots that you're at, is there anything that you would want to tell either, um, early career physicians who are looking to get in into a simulation of their center or things that you wish you had known prior to this, um, you know, either or or both. Yeah, just, you know, for anybody that's listening, you know, education um, is a very viable career choice. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of fell into it, but, um, you know, uh, I'm very happy that I do it. I love uh, mentoring medical students, going into general surgery, teaching residents, teaching fellows, uh, thinking about, you know, cool technology and cool education research. Um, uh, as with most things, it, 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 it takes an interest and it takes good mentors. Um, so, uh, but, uh, you know, you can certainly have a successful academic career being a surgical educator. Um, it's uh, very doable and very rewarding, I think. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, I think it provides a nice uh, balance to the uh, clinical workload. Um, not only are you in a position then to assist kind of medical education, but uh, like I was alluding to earlier, sometimes just different process issues that develop in the hospital, you can be a key player in trying to uh, help formulate that. Um, COVID was a prime example where we, you know, we have to change our workflows so quickly that we utilize simulation to uh, help the different teams kind of adapt to that. Uh, and so, you know, as 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 one of the simulation people at uh, Penn, you know, I was asked to help along with that. So there's a lot of opportunity that can that can come with it. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think uh, even though there's a lot of front end work that needs to go into it, uh, really, you know, your imagination, uh, there's no limit to the imagination and you can create, it doesn't have to be boring. You can create a multitude of scenarios uh, that would, uh, that evolve over time. Uh, and that keeps it interesting, I think. Yeah, and the other uh, huge part of it is that um, there are educators all around us, um, nursing, trainees, fellows. And I think some of them are already doing a lot of the work. So if you find and you kind of flag them like, hey, you know what, this person would be really good as part of our core group. Um, you might be surprised by how much additional support that you will get instead of you having to do all the scenarios, right? Like that's something that maybe a fellow can do or a senior resident can can pull up. Um, or if your nurses are heavily involved in performance improvement like they are here, you know, that's something that they could they could also help as well. Um, they've been very helpful with a lot of the, you know, um, new equipment that comes in, interosseous catheter training, all those kinds of things. They're, they're our go-to people. So I definitely reach out to them and, and respect their roles in, in simulation as well. Um, so, yeah. 
And I think one of the, you know, and, I, and, and hopefully your institutions are like this as well. Uh, but, you know, our leadership at the, at the U has, has really recognized over the last 10 years is that different surgeons have different interests and a high functioning academic institution allows uh, their faculty to excel in the areas that they're interested in. It just doesn't try to pigeonhole people in the stuff like, you know, I am not a, a grant monkey. Uh, you know, I, I do not like sitting there and, and begging the government for money that, you know, you have a low chance of getting. One of my partners is really good at it, loves write, writing grants. She's got 50% research time, and I'm happy to, to take extra weeks of service so that she can do that and advance her career. Uh, but, you know, the, the institution has recognized that, you know, I have uh, I've taken the time to become an educator. I like doing it. I'm somewhat good at it because they keep on giving me leadership roles. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, for the trainees out there that are interested in education, uh, there are a lot of high-functioning institutions that value education, will allow you to create that space, give you mentorship, give you the resources to do it and do it well, because it's vital to what we do. That's one of the three pillars of academic medicine. There's clinical care, research, and then education. That's, that's the three pillars. So uh, find, find an institution that supports it, and you can have a, a, be very happy and very successful in your career. And hopefully my colleagues on this podcast are at, at institutions that support them as well. So. Uh, and any advice that you guys would have about uh, finding a mentor, if that's something that you're interested in? I think you can just look in the literature. I mean, you'll see who's been very productive in that sphere. And, you know, Dr. Kazim, Dr. Kalani, it, you know, the, the names will pop up. And I, you know, I've had a couple people actually just kind of cold call me or email me and be like, hey, you know, I heard that you're doing this. Can we just chat about it? And I said, absolutely. And we've collaborated. You know, sometimes it's like, they're just trying to think of scenarios to write up. I'm like, you don't have to do that. You know, like I have a couple of templates. You want to take a look. So save yourself some time by reaching out to some people that are experts in the field or who, have, you know, produce a lot of this work. They may be able to really, you know, cut down a lot of the sort of investigation time that you'll put into it. Like you said, don't reinvent the wheel. <laughs> I've been a member since I was a resident. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, a lot of I uh, met a lot of the folks, especially on all the committees I'm on uh, now for the double AST. Like I created our acute care surgery fellowship year from scratch uh, at mm -hmm. my institution. It's not really from scratch because I basically took it from all of my colleagues that have already done before. I, you know, I got, uh, you know, curriculum from Wake Forest, uh, spent a lot of time on the phone with Dr. Uh, Clay Berlew from uh, Colorado about how to put together the year. And, uh, you know, I did not. Like as Dr. Parker said multiple times, don't don't make more work for yourself. Other people have done it. People are happy to collaborate and share their work. I shared my program information files with a couple of different institutions that uh, are putting together acute care surgery years. Um, the people are out there that they've done the work, collaborate, make it better. East is a fantastic um, institution for meeting those folks. We've always been interested in education, double uh, AST as well. Um, they're out there. Email me, email Dr. Park, email Dr. Kassam. We're always mm -hmm. happy to, to chat and and uh, and further the educational uh, goal of what we do. All right. Well, I think we're running running low on time, but I really appreciate everyone' um, advice and uh, wisdom, and I really appreciate you taking your time to to speak with me today. And I've I've really learned a lot. And now I'm definitely inspired to go build my own silicone uh, <laughs> model. <laughs> Sounds like a good do-it-yourself project. <laughs> uh, 
Um, any final thoughts before we uh, uh, log off here? I'd say East, um, you know, I actually joined relatively late, I would say like within the last few years, but it has so many resources. I mean, I love the Landmark Paper website. There's an incredible amount of work that folks put into this. And really it, you know, the bastion is that it's mentorship for, you know, young faculty kind of to get up and start moving their careers. And so I think it's an incredible place to start. So much great networking um, available as well. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you to Drs. Park, Colonna, and Kasim for joining us today. And thank you for listening to this career cast covering the role of simulation in medical education, brought to you by the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma's Career Development Committee. Thank you all very much. Bye. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye.